The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, because it is Advent and the Christian season for most people in the world, I know that one story gets told over and over and over. It's the story that we center this time of year, which is the birth story of Jesus, and that everybody has their favorite versions of that story. And so my favorite version of the birth narrative of Jesus is the one that you find in Luke's gospel in Luke 2. And the reason that I like that is because it's got all the stuff in it. It's got angels in it. It's got magi in it. It's got stars. It's got Herod. It's got all of the stuff. And the rest of the stories that tell the birth of Jesus, they don't have all the other stuff. So it's my favorite. And probably if you're like me, if your house is like my house, um, you have that story all over your house. If you were to come to my house right now, you would think that Christmas had exploded in there. I'm pretty sure that Rochelle is taking decorating cues from Hallmark movies, where there's just like Christmas everywhere. We legitimately have three Christmas trees in the house. We have the window tree, the girls have a tree upstairs, and we have the family tree, which just has all of their stuff and ornaments that they've made throughout the years. There is garland everywhere, and I'm pretty sure that Rochelle has just south of about 1,400 nativity sets in the house. So if you didn't know the Christmas story from Luke 2, you could come to our house and see it. And if you have a nativity set in your house, it is from Luke 2, because you can't get much from the other tellings of the Christmas story in the Bible. So if you're just opening up Matthew, Matthew begins with a genealogy. It's just a list of names of generations that come before Jesus. It's a very important list of names. It tells us a lot about who Jesus is, but it's just that list of names that you don't know. You don't know who those people are. They're hard to pronounce. And if you were to open John, John decides that he's going to go all the way back to the beginning of the world. So you have the beginning of the world, and then Jesus is just like preaching like just skips everything. Mark doesn't even bother with any of that. He just has Jesus out preaching. And then there's this other story, birth narrative of Jesus that happens in Revelation. And it's got some of the baby stuff that you're all familiar with, but it also has a dragon and you don't want that at Christmas. So you don't put out that nativity. (laughs) And so most of us know Luke's version. Luke's version is the version that you have in your nativity. And you don't have to have actually ever been around a church or be a Christian to know Luke's story. Because when you drive by a nativity, if you see something, that's the one it's telling. And if you missed all of that, I know that Luke is your favorite telling because either you are or you were once a child. And if you were ever a child, you probably learned the birth of Jesus through this story. (laughs) I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. 
Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Well, that's how I learned about what Christmas was. And like, not just that, like, Peanuts was basically my holiday explainer as a kid, like, from the Great Pumpkin to that Thanksgiving one that nobody watches to this one. Like, I don't know that I would have understood any of the holidays without Peanuts and Charlie Brown. And this is a story that's everywhere. And you don't have to have ever been inside of a church or ever read a Bible to know that story because it is so ubiquitous. But there's something that happens when a story is everywhere. Like when a story gets to be everywhere, where anything gets to be everywhere, you start to lose pieces of it, and sometimes important pieces of it, because folks are just kind of cobbling together this and that. And it's kind of like one of my favorite philosophers, Soren Kierkegaard, once said, in a place where everybody's a Christian, nobody's a Christian. Like when it's just everywhere, then the importance kind of gets watered down. And you've known people like this. You have people in your life who can't ever tell a story the right way. So I was, I was a youth pastor for about a dozen years and I was at this church and this lady kept talking about what the youth group there used to be like before me. And so it was a small group at the time and she kept telling me all the time about this time where they had 700 kids. We used to have 700 kids back in that back room. And so for about half a decade, I walked around feeling like a failure because they used to have 700 kids back there. And finally I got bold enough to ask somebody, did y'all have 700 kids here? And they explained to me that there was one day where they had a large gathering from kids from a lot of different churches who all came to this one thing one day and they might have had 200. <laughs> but you all know how stories can kind of take on their own life. And the Christmas story's done that. Like you've gone probably to a Christmas pageant maybe when you were, you were in one as a kid or maybe your kids or your grandkids. And there's just a lot of stuff that happens in that Christmas pageant that if you were to open up your Bible and try to find it, you would not find it at all. And I get it because you need poetic license. That's why Bible movies are almost always bad because if they only had what was in the scripture, it would be like curtain comes up, curtain comes down. It's like five minutes. There's just not a lot of meat on that bone. But what's happened over time with so many stories that we think we know well, 
Sometimes something happens and we reread them, rediscover them, and what we discover is that it's a story that we don't know at all. So you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the Magi. And that Gospel of Matthew, Matthew doesn't tell us at all how many Magi there were. We have no idea. But there was a tradition that grew up around the Magi that there are these three Magi. And the reason that tradition grew up that there were three Magi is because Jesus got three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are just banger gifts for a baby. (laughs) And so three gifts, three gift givers. But you can ask my children. I have two daughters, and they are the only nieces or nephews on either side and the only grandchildren on either side. They know that there is no corollary between the number of gifts they get and the number of gift givers because they make out like bandits on Christmas. And it does not matter if they have been naughty or nice. But that's what happens to stories. And then we do put them in nativities and we make movies around them and it becomes the story that everyone knows. But the biggest misconception about the Christmas story, or at least the one that gets under my skin the most, is one that's actually really important. And it might change the way that you celebrate this season in your home and with your family and with your extended family. So if I could give you a gift today, it would be that you hear these words as if you are hearing them for the first time. This is the way that Luke tells his story. Around the time of Elizabeth's amazing pregnancy and John's birth, the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, required everyone in the Roman Empire to participate in a massive census. The first census since Quirinius had become governor of Syria. Each person had to go to his or her ancestral city to be counted. Mary's fiance, Joseph, from Nazareth in Galilee, had to participate in the census the same way everyone else did. Because he was a descendant of King David, his ancestral city was Bethlehem, David's birthplace. Mary, who was now late in her pregnancy that the messenger Gabriel had predicted, accompanied Joseph. While in Bethlehem, she went into labor and gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped the baby in a blanket and laid him in a feeding trough because the inn had no room for them. Well, this is the story you know. Joseph and Mary have to participate in the census, so they go to Joseph's ancestral home, and they show up there, staggering in, late having traveled. Mary goes into labor, and she gives birth to Jesus in a stable because there was no room at the inn. That's the party line, but when you actually read the story, That's not at all what happens. Here's a different story. Bethlehem is Joseph's ancestral home. And it's more than just an ancestral home. 
It's a familial home. Have any of you from an ancestral home? I know what it's like to be from an ancestral home because I was born black in Mississippi. And when my wife first went to Jackson, Mississippi with me, she met person after person after person, and every one of them introduced themselves to her, and she goes, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm Sean's cousin. And she looked at me at one point after a couple of days and goes, how many cousins do you have? And I was like, I don't even know all those people, but that's what it's like here. We're all related somehow. And Joseph is going home. Joseph is not just going to a place to be counted, to participate in this very routine census, just like you pay your taxes every year. Joseph is going home. He's going back to a place he knows and to a people he knows. And not only that, if you read all of the birth narratives, you will know that when Mary discovers, when she's told by the angel that she is going to have a child, she also finds out that her cousin Elizabeth is going to have a child. She is the mother of John the Baptist. So what does Elizabeth do? She gets up, she says, Mary, come visit me. Mary leaves Nazareth and she goes to visit Elizabeth in where? Bethlehem. Mary has already been to Bethlehem. And now she gets all the way back to Nazareth. She looks at Joseph and Joseph says, you know what? We got to do the census thing. We're going back to Bethlehem, which I'm sure she was super fired up about. Because it's not like you can just hop on a flight and go. She has a travel back to Bethlehem late in her pregnancy. Have you been around a woman late in her pregnancy? And Rochelle was pregnant with our first. We made this plan. She needed to finish out the school year um, where she was the therapist on staff. And so she was going to bank as many days as possible to be home with Malia after she was born. And so the plan was she was going to work all the way up to delivery. So she comes home one day about three weeks before she's set to deliver. And she walks in and plops down on the couch and says, I'm not going back. I'm done. Late in her pregnancy, Mary has to go back to Bethlehem. And on either trip, either the trip she took to visit Elizabeth or this one she now takes with Joseph, the greatest likelihood is that she stayed with her family, with Joseph's family. And even if that weren't the case, Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem. And if they were looking for lodging, they could have stayed anywhere. Because when you read 
the first Testament, when we read the Old Testament, you will discover that there are laws and customs for Jewish people because anti-Semitism in the ancient world is just as prevalent as it is today and Jews took care of one another. And so if someone showed up at your door and needed hospitality, needed a place to stay, you were duty bound to give, them to, give it to them. Jesus actually tells a story about this later in the Gospel of Luke. He says a man needs help and he knocks on a stranger's door at midnight. And he's given the help that he needs. And when Jesus tells that story, he looks around to all of his audience and he goes, of course, who wouldn't do that? That's just what we do. By this time, everyone had the same practices. If someone showed up at your door and they were in need, you would render aid. And when you're reading the story, Luke mentions three words that we just slide by. And Mary starts to go into labor. And he tells us, while in Bethlehem. They didn't just park the car and get out. The plane hadn't just touched down. The train didn't just land. They were there already. They had been there. And while they were there, she goes into labor. And all of this, all of this confusion is the result of one little Greek word, Cataluma. Cataluma is the word in Luke 2 that is translated in most Bibles, in, and it gives this sense of a commercial in. Like they knocked on the door of the Howard Johnsons and said, is there a room? But Cataluma, the only time in the entire scripture that the word Cataluma is translated in is here in Luke 2. And it's used several times. As a matter of fact, there's a completely different word for in. And Luke uses it later in Luke 10. Luke tells a story of a guy who's walking down the street and he is harassed and beaten and left for dead. And a Samaritan comes by and the Samaritan helps him and starts to bandage him up. And he takes him where only a Samaritan could because a Samaritan couldn't knock on a Jewish door. He takes them to an inn. That's a different word. And every other time in the New Testament, when you see the word Cataluma, it is never translated in. It's always translated guest room. And Jesus is saying, Luke is saying that Jesus is born. There is no room in the Cataluma. And here's why. As Joseph and Mary travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem to participate in a census, just like everybody else did. Their family from all over the region are traveling to Bethlehem for the census. Have you had people in your family come to stay? My mother and sister-in-law were in town this weekend. And when you have all of those people come, some of you are going to experience this when you travel to see family this Christmas or have family come in. The first question you have to ask is like, where are all these people going to sleep? 
Where are they going to stay? Because the kids are too old to just lay out a pallet on the floor anymore. We got to put people in a bed. Mom's got a bad back. Sister-in-law's got a bad knee. Everybody's got to have a place to stay. And Luke is saying, Mary goes into labor and there is no room in the Cataluma, no room in the guest room, no privacy in the guest room. Were any of you there? Have you been around a woman who's giving birth? When our daughters were born, it was a pretty chill day for most of the day. It was just like the doctor and the nurse. And then right before, like as she starts crowning and the baby starts coming out, like 45 people come into the room and they're all like, your wife is there all up in stirrups and everything. You're like, this is the most undignified thing. There is no room in the guest room. There's no privacy in the guest room. In the ancient Middle East, in modern Palestinian homes, there are these three spaces. And one was like the main space, and then just a few steps up was the Cataluma, the guest room. Later on, when Jesus is preparing to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, he sends his disciples on ahead of him. And he says, I want to find a place. Go find a place for me to celebrate the Passover with you. Go find a Cataluma. And only the wealthiest people had stables or enough animals to need stables that were separate from the house. The lower portion of the house, this little inlet when you walk in, was where if you had just a few animals just for your own needs, that you would keep them. And so just to stave off bad weather and thieves, people would bring their animals into the house, into the lower region of the house, and there they had all of the things that they needed. And food, water, manger. And Lucas saying, when Mary goes into labor, that in this little space where the animals are kept at night is where Jesus is born. And he is laid there in a manger. Probably because it was the softest place to lay a child. And there, amongst created things, the creator is born. Now, so about this time, you're asking yourselves, Sean, why are you ruining my nativity sets? <laughs> and I don't want to ruin your nativity sets. Keep them. We got 1,400. Like I told you, we're keeping them all. And I wouldn't tell you that unless it was extraordinarily important. Because if you've been around Ecclesia for a while, you know that each Advent season, we celebrate together Advent Conspiracy, where we talk about trying to recapture the imagination for what it means to welcome Jesus into the world. And we talk about these four things. We talk about love all and worship fully and give more and to spend less. And spend less can mean exactly what it sounds like that you just actually need to spend less, that there is a version of Christmas out in the world that is about consumerism and 
conspicuous consumption, and some of us just need to spend less. Just like Pastor Chris talked about last week, like no one needs to go into debt because Jesus was born. And this last week, Time Magazine reported that 25% of Americans are in debt from last Christmas. But it's not just about saving you some money. It's not just about spending less of your resources, but about considering how you spend, spending your time, your resources, your energy. It's about how you spend all of those and where and on who and why. And this very first Christmas that has all of this imagination around it about stables and horses and mangers, all of it really happens in an ordinary home. That Jesus comes to us in an ordinary home. And regardless of who you are, the one thing that we all share together is that we all have ordinary homes. And even for the few of us who have spectacular houses, we have ordinary homes. Ordinary homes with people who don't always get along with one another and with its own stresses and its own anxieties. We have ordinary homes where we all carry deep pain and hurt that hardly anyone knows about. An ordinary home. And it's right there in the midst of the ordinary that the Savior comes. And there is this temptation to make this time of year spectacular and ornate. When in reality, the miracle of Jesus happens in the ordinary, the everyday things, the 99 cent things, the sitting in traffic, the waiting on the kids, the putting up the dishes, kinds of things. That's where Jesus is. And ordinary people doing ordinary things. And every one of us has an idea about how the world could be better. Like these people need to do this and those folks need to do this and politics needs to be like that and the war there needs to be handled this way. And there's some of that that we can do something about. When we pool our resources together, we can make an impact in pockets of that around the world. But the reality is that many of us can't do much of anything about most of that. But if you want the world to be more harmonious and peaceful and united, what you can't do around the world, you can do at home in your very ordinary home. So if you're around this summer, you will know that while I was on sabbatical, my brother died. 
And so every week when we gather, we are very mindful as a church and as a staff of the realities of life, that in any given week, that there are people here who are celebrating, who are grieving, who are joyous, who are mourning. And we try to hold all of that, but I'm particularly sensitive about it when we get around major holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, or when it's the first for someone, when it's their first Christmas without someone they love, when it's their first Thanksgiving, when it's the anniversary. And so I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks thinking about Christmas and mindful of the fact that my favorite Christmases have always been with my brother. Like when we were kids and our parents were out of the house and we would slightly unwrap gifts to kind of see what they were inside and then tape them back. On Christmas morning, we'd wake up super early and try to get to the gifts because whenever we got there, we could just start opening up. I remember one Christmas, we got up and we got out of bed and we ran to our bedroom door and like pulled on it. And my mom had tied rope to the handle of our door, across the hall to her door, down the hall. Like we were not getting out of, if there would have been a fire. (laughs) And even in adulthood, when he would come here and the reality is just having been a pastor, he, most of the time he had to come here because we have Christmas Eve services and I always have. Have you noticed we have like 14,000 Christmas Eve services this year? And so if we're going to be together at Christmas, he always had to make the sacrifice to come here. But about two years ago, I happened to be in Raleigh speaking for a church there one of the Sundays of Advent. And that's where he and my sister-in-law live. And so we're going to get to see each other. It had to be a very fast trip. I was coming in on Saturday night. I was going to preach that morning. And then he said, okay, we're going to come. We'll pick you up from church. You'll hang out at our house all afternoon. And then we're going to go to this special dinner at this place called the Angus Barn. Have any of you been to Raleigh? Have you been to the Angus Barn? You've been to the Angus Barn? It is ridiculous. It's got a great wine selection and food selection. You have to get there like four hours early to get a table. You make reservations like years and years ahead of time. And so I'm thinking on this Sunday, this is great. I'll just go and we'll just hang out at the house and we'll just catch up, see how things are going. And he says, oh, I've got some stuff for you that I want, you know, some wine I want you to try and we'll just sit and have a good time. So we get to his house and we just start talking. And this, this is the picture that we took that day. This is the last picture of us together. And suddenly when we were there, his front door becomes a revolving door with all of his friends from his church and their neighborhood coming by. And I was thinking this whole time, I thought we were just going to hang out. Why are all these people here? And they just weren't there. Like they came like loaded with questions for me, like mostly like Enneagram questions, like some of them brought books to sign. And I thought, am I doing a seminar right now? Am I gonna get paid at the end of this? And I thought it was the strangest thing. And I talked to my mom like two weeks later and I said, well, I thought we were just gonna like hang out the afternoon, but all of these people started coming by. And I was like, I don't get all that. I guess he didn't wanna hang out, he wanted to hang out with his friends and I just happened to be in town. And she goes, oh no. I know what that is. She goes, he just wanted all of his friends to meet his successful brother. 
And so I thought, well, I didn't sign on for all that. I was tired. I just wanted to relax. And so we go later that night to the Angus barn, and he gets there and puts his name on the list with the hostess. And she says, it'll be two hours. But he had told me before we got there, he told me the night before, this place is really special. Don't eat anything all day. So I followed his direction, which I should never have done. It's like a first time ever. And I hadn't eaten anything all day, but we had drank wine all afternoon. And so I thought, is there a Whataburger or something around here? Because I don't have another two hours in me. And so I go out and talk with my sister-in-law outside, just enjoying the cool weather there. And about five minutes later, he comes and taps me on the shoulder and he said, let's go. We walk in and go upstairs to this private dining area and we sit down. He introduces me to um, one of the young women on the wait staff there who's gonna be taking care of us for the night. And then another one comes by and they talk to him. And then another one comes by and they stand and they talk to him. And this is very typical for my brother, for my brother and my dad, never met a stranger, know everybody in town. Like his funeral actually had overflow seating and it was in a high school auditorium. Like my funeral will be able, you'll be able to hold that in my backyard. And people ask me like, how did you become an introvert? And I was like, have you met my brother? Like I was done with people at 16 when he left. And then I look over and I see that in this private dining room, they've got his picture on the wall. Like how many times do you eat here that they've got your picture on the wall? And he says, get whatever you want. Uh, it's, it's on me. And so we spend the rest of the night just he and me and my sister-in-law and her mother just talking about ordinary things and ordinary life. Mine and his, our waitresses. And even before he passed away this summer, I always thought that was one of my best Christmases. And it was one of the best made up of extraordinarily ordinary things. And so my prayer for you this Christmas, as this will be the last time I get to talk to all of you before next year, my prayer for you this Christmas is that you will find Jesus in your ordinary home. That there's nothing out there in some other part of the world, nothing in a store, nothing in Christmas lights in River Oaks, nothing at the Galleria, nothing at a kid's performance, nothing at a party that will outshine the miracle that God is doing bringing Jesus into your ordinary home. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.